This is the Circus Voices Podcast from CircusTalk.com. I'm Book Kinnison. Welcome to another episode of See You Down the Road. We are five episodes through our six-episode season. It's really been a joy to bring you these stories, and we hope they've provided you some comfort during these times. Thank you for listening. So, as circus people, maybe we have skills we dream of learning, acts we dream of making, shows we dream of creating. When we're really lucky, those dreams come true. But what about the projects that never come to fruition? What becomes of them? That's what we're going to hear about on today's show with our guests, Sebastian Kahn and Natalie Olenek. Sebastian and Natalie are the founders of a company called Manor House. Their first project was a show, also called Manor House, that they had planned to mount in their early 20s. But the show never happened. And years later, they got to thinking about what remained of the project. To find out, Natalie adapted the piece into a short graphic novel, and she and Sebastian conducted a series of interviews in which they explored the piece's unrealized potential. Both the graphic novel and the interview are included in a new book called Thinking Through Circus, which was edited by Bauka Levens, Quintain Cadles, Vincent Fouquet, and Sebastian. In today's episode, Sebastian and Natalie read an excerpt from Thinking Through Circus, they recorded these excerpts on their own, Sebastian in Brussels, Belgium, Natalie in Toulouse, France. Here's Sebastian Can and Natalie Olenek on See You Down the Road. When I think about our past work, the word that comes to my mind is fantasy. We were enacting certain fantasies that we had in our lives at the time, fantasies that we couldn't act out off stage like our obsession with overplaying emotion. Looking back now, it feels like it was a reaction to being an American living in Europe, wanting to be dramatic and excited about certain things and feeling we had to repress our reactions. Then our twins figures. They had this very us-against-the-world vibe, which I think was less about Europe and more about the circus world in general and feeling that we didn't fit in. Through these twin characters, we were imagining ourselves as kind of sinister teenagers hanging around on the outskirts, and your character in a business suit. To me now, that character looks like us wondering, what is a good job? What is good work? It was a lot of fantasy. We were also, and I didn't realize it then, living out our own fantasy of what it meant to create a show. We were doing things in a kind of fantasy bubble. We imagined a show that would have been impossible for us to make. And we lived for a year as if it was actually going to happen. Remember when we went to Circa Festival in Osh? We had all these meetings with people who represented important institutions. We presented them this elaborate dossier that was like, we want all this stuff. A full staircase, a custom shag carpet, a full-size tree on stage. They were like, well, what can we do for you? And we were like, I don't know, what can you do for us? We have nothing yet, and we want it all. 
We were operating as if this super ambitious show was realistic for us as unknown artists, inexperienced in production and administration and selling. We were operating as if those institutions were actually fantasy to stage wish granters, as if their approval would mean that anything could happen, that all of these steps we would have needed to have taken would have been taken care of for us. Maybe this totally inappropriate way of operating was itself an artistic gesture. I think the best projects are the ones that aren't completed. They stay in a state of potential. There's something inevitably disappointing when the infinite potential of a project becomes a humdrum everyday reality. How many shows do we go and see? It becomes such an everyday thing. When you're working on a project that has the potential to go beyond the everyday, to be truly extraordinary, then, at a certain point, it becomes just another show in the brochure. When I think about impossible projects, I think about things that I'm still optimistic about. Finding a home, being part of a queer community, living a lively, durable intimacy that's rooted in a feeling of at least semi-permanent investment in a place. That's where my first thoughts go. With all of those things, there's a somewhat vague endgame. I don't know what those things could look like in reality. The fact that fantasy is vague and out of reach does do something to drive me. I keep on wondering how will it happen? What will it look like? I never experienced the everydayness of the fantasy. On the other hand, there are some impossible projects that I've abandoned and, and I feel fine about. I was training to be a contortionist. That's an impossible project that I no longer feel motivated by. Where do I keep that? That one I keep in my body, I guess. There are traces of that in my body. I think we actually avoided this first performance becoming too possible. It was always an impossible project. Turning Manor House into a graphic novel made it dangerously real for me. If we had drawn this out at the time, we would have seen how many steps away from reality we were. We didn't have the staircase, we didn't have the platform, we didn't have the tree. It would have been harder to push for because we would have seen just how impossible it was. But there is also something about delusion that gives you energy. An impossible project is like having a crush on someone. You're excited all the time, and it keeps you going. There's hope. It's disillusionment that's draining. We both had a rude awakening after the fantasy period was over, realizing how hard it was to make a living doing circus, and how much energy it takes to keep so many projects going. I feel like I hit a wall after no longer being employed by a big company, after realizing Manor House would never happen, kind of taking all of that in. And because of those experiences, after being through that and starting to understand what it takes to make a big production, the kind of almost cinematic work we had been dreaming about was no longer what I wanted to make. Now I see shows like that and I think, wow, impressive. But where did the money come from to make this? What did the artist go through? And whose idea is that, actually? 
Now, I tend to feel a little put off by something so big and so spectacular. So, no, I don't think I would want to stage this show now. The amount of money, time, and resources that it would take is not something that I would want to be responsible for, nor something that I would want to show people or to see, because I know what's behind it. Everyone knows that it's hard to make a living in the arts. But in the period after we shelved this first performance, I started to see that no one in the arts is having an easy time. In this kind of large-scale production, what's represented on stage feels very disconnected from the working experience of the people on stage. The performers look as if they're inhabiting a parallel universe where they don't even need a job. It covers up the problem of sustainability in the arts. Maybe that kind of fantasy isn't what any audience needs to see. It's kind of funny how we had these really gendered roles in Manor House. I'm thinking about our actions, the way we moved, and the characters we tried to create. I wore dresses, and you wore a suit and a spacesuit. Today, we tend to wear the exact same thing as each other. Part of what I like is experimenting with how similar we can be. And, at the same time, I think that now you somehow see the differences between us as individuals more. I'm trying to remember when I first felt sexism in circus. I always knew it was a big part of the world, but we never talked about it at circus school. There was just so much sexist shit at school, but somehow everybody's bodies were objectified, not just women's bodies. We were all just struggling with and against it together. Since entering the professional world, I felt sexism much more acutely. Most theater directors seem to be men. Men tend to have the most powerful role in institutions. In production meetings and during feedback, people turn to speak to the man in the room. I remember traveling with you during the making of Manor House. It's when I really felt chauvinism and misogyny for the first time. Homophobia I was more familiar with. In commercial settings, male gayness is only allowed on stage in certain forms, under the heading of glamour or comedy, especially in venues with high production value. We're particularized, and in that way objectified. And of course I was witness to the way women's bodies were objectified routinely in even more obvious ways. But the day-to-day -day of sexism, the way it plays out backstage and in the sociality of circus work, I didn't really feel it until you taught me how to pay attention. The way people would interact with us when we were pitching the show together, the way that people would always turn to me to ask a question or for clarification, and especially when it came to the budget, I had no fucking idea, neither of us did, but they would look at me. When we first started working together, power and gender weren't things we talked about. But I did have a sense of relief while working in the studio with you. I had a sense of escaping something heavy, something that had been dragging me down. So I suppose there was an element of criticality in our work together. We were certainly choosing to operate differently and thus to reject a certain heavy work environment. 
As our shared practice began, faltered, and then began again, I became more and more familiar with contemporary circus institutions. I was disappointed to realize that normativity and exclusion aren't any less present in apparently artistic circus settings than in avowedly commercial ones. In the world of contemporary circus, there are still arbitrary hierarchies and structures of privilege. They're just a little bit more discreet. It's all about being an insider, about speaking the language, about fashion, trends, and knowing how to navigate institutional politics. As we realized this, the question of what kinds of bodies and practices are allowed to become visible in circus, or who or what is made invisible, started to become central to our thinking. In the perfect circus institution, people would have time for other people. Now, everyone feels underappreciated and overlooked because everyone is overworked. In my perfect dream space, people would, somehow, not be overworked. And when you met with someone, it would feel like they actually cared about what you had to say. And you could feel you had the time to listen to what they said. We wouldn't be thinking, I need to go to my next thing. When is this over? This fantasy institution is a creation space. There would be space for people who don't have a set plan of action, who don't have tons of sponsors and a pitch, but who want the space to think on their own. Now there are training spaces, but they don't provide the right conditions to be creative. I'm always hoping when I open the door to a training space that it will be magically empty and I'll be able to work on my own. But I don't think that's ever actually happened to me in Toulouse. There would also be a library in my dream space. A quiet place where you could open a book, write in your journal, draw something, talk to the librarian. And it would be in a building that's shared by other kinds of artists. Circus spaces, and I know it's really complicated to find the kind of space that can have rigging and all the things I need, but they then tend to be outside of the city, pretty often in industrial spaces so only circus artists enter the building. In circus spaces, we're isolated. It would be great to be able to see other kinds of artists, or not even artists, just people, at work and to get inspired. The circus bubble is really hard to break. Oh yes, and I would add an affordable restaurant to this fantasy, or at least a place to cook your food and where you don't feel awkward that if it were less complicated to find good workspace, I would feel less complicated about my relation to other circus artists. As it is now, every time other artists walk into the training space, I have a feeling of being obstructed because I wish for my own space. I feel crowded, and it sucks to see other people as obstacles and to be frustrated by their presence. It's sad. Now, when I criticize the way things work in Belgium, where I live, for example, there's always a little voice in my head saying, whoa, 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 wait up. You're lucky that there's any arts funding available at all. There's always a part of me that wonders if I'm being a spoiled brat. 
On the other hand, the notion that we should just be grateful for everything we do have is one way of silencing criticism about what's messed up about the system. When I think about the way we were operating in the face of circus institutions during the creation phase we're documenting here, assuming that they could grant our wishes for free, so to speak, I think, wow, we had such an entitled attitude. But I also believe that there's a gray area where entitlement overlaps with simply demanding this world be the best world it can possibly be. Thanks to Sebastian and Natalie for reading for us. We should note the publication of Thinking Through Circus was made possible by the Arts Research Fund of University College Ghent and co-funded with the support of the Flemish government. For more about Thinking Through Circus and the project it was born out of, called the Circus Dialogues, check the show notes at circustalk.com news. See You Down the Road is produced by me and Zoe Kinnison. Our executive producer is Circus Talk.
All of the music you've heard in this entire series was produced by me in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Book Kinnison. I'll see you down the road. Zoe here. Circus Talk is committed to helping artists during this time of crisis. They're offering two free months of the pro feature to all members until the end of April. They've also started a COVID-19 response page where you can find out about funding and other resources in your area, or you can send them resources that you want to share. Finally, Circus Talk is rolling out a new service to help you get paid for your work. A ticket sales option so you can earn income from your live-streamed or pre-recorded circus shows, classes, and workshops. Look for this new feature coming soon on the event page of CircusTalk.com.